and in this episode of Green Signals, the railway podcast. Local leaders are to receive £4.7 billion, we are told, to transform transport in the North and Midlands using money reallocated, again, we are told, from HS2. But is there a catch? Why has government still not committed to Northern Powerhouse Rail? Avanti West Coast talk about what it's doing for women and we hear from an expert on what more the whole industry needs to do. The countdown to reopening Scotland's Five Mile Leavenmouth branch is underway. And Florence, the TBM, that's tunnel boring machine to you and me, reaches an important milestone. Hello and welcome to Green Signals from me, Nigel Harris, and... And from me, Richard Bowker. Here we go. So if you enjoy the show, please give the episode a thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube and please hit that subscribe button. It's completely free, but it really does help us to grow Green Signals. And we're growing this week for sure because it's a two-pod week for us. Yesterday, we published our interview with Network Rail Chief Executive Andrew Haynes, in which he debunked some of the myths about the Rail Reform Bill and spoke with great passion about the opportunity it provides for genuine transformation. We were really impressed with Andrew's clarity, his passion and his resolute determination that GBR will not be run by Network Rail. This is a genuine culture change moment. Were you convinced, Richard? Partly, partly. Um, look, I, I mean, more than I, more than I kind of thought I would. Oh, right. Yeah, um, but still partly. Um, let me explain. So I thought he made a really, uh, he made a really good point about culture. Now, Andrew explained why he thought the culture of network rail had got to the point it had to today, which was very much driven by. Um, the the world it lives in. And it's a rational response of the people at Network Rail to being an infrastructure operator that's highly regulated and, you know, all the rest of it without necessarily being exposed to what a customer-facing train operating business does in terms of, um, in terms of their, their, their needs. And it was quite good. And then I kind of pondered on it sort of um, afterwards and thought, well, hang on a minute. For many, many years, Network Rail has had customers. And I've always wondered whether it's, well, not really wondered, I've always struggled with, have they really understood what it means to have customers? You know, and that's, so I, I'm not, I wasn't entirely convinced um, by that. But but what I do think was brilliant was his passion. Oh, I mean, that, that yes. came across for you, didn't it? Well, absolutely. He made a point early on that he'd had the Network Rail chief executive's job longer than anyone. Yeah, that was amazing, actually. God only knows the pressure he's under and his diary, and the it's just relentless. So to see him so full of enthusiasm, vim, vigor, brio, call it what you will, because his head is definitely still in the collar, isn't it? And he's really pulling and really enthusiastic, and I think that is just brilliant. It, it is it is brilliant, and I was I was excited by that because you to do these jobs you absolutely need energy. I mean, well, if you, you know if, that, you yeah, know. if you run out of energy, my goodness, you're, you're you're in trouble. I suppose one of the other things, though, that that I was less convinced by we, you know, we had that sort of discussion at the end of 
the interview with Andrew. And for those who haven't heard it, pl- please do listen to it oh, because God, yes. it, it really does. It, it does not pull any punches. He is much more open than I think perhaps people might expect him to have been, which was brilliant for us. And he made but, it very clear what a watershed moment it is. He did. He did. But he talked quite, we talked quite a bit about the contractual matrix. We talked about the role of the private sector. We talked about network rail becoming part of Great British Railways that was going to be this infrastructure and franchise or or concession commissioning authority. And he said a fascinating thing. He said, I think one of the reasons why performance is so poor on the railway today is because of the contractual matrix. I think, actually, as I reflected on that, I'm not sure. I think, well, that might actually be true, but the it's problem... It comes from that that causes well, the problem. The problem is we're going to create a new contractual matrix, right? It's And it may or may not work, but I, I still believe that you can have a reform pathway alongside getting to grips with performance and reliability in a way that that almost is not is despite the contractual matrix rather than because of it. And I that was the bit that sort of left me kind of scratching my head a bit. But what a great interview and what oh, a great discussion. Oh God, yeah. But what you will have, you will have another contractual matrix, but you've got one organization in charge of it without the DFT, which is fundamental. Um, you know, the, the 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 new body can say to government, what sort of railway do you want? How much money do you want to spend on it? Now leave us to deliver that as best we can. And I think that's really important. Two other points that Andrew made, which um re- very, very relevant to a lot of hearsay and stuff going on in social media and, and the wider press, actually, is that uh, I talked to one prominent national journalist who heard Andrew's interview on Times Radio and said, oh, it's obvious GBR is toast. And that was my first question. He said, absolutely not. And you asked him, you said, is GBR going to be the brand and badge for this new organisation? And he was absolutely clear about that, that yes, it is, to the extent that question I asked you a couple of episodes ago, would the network rail brand disappear? You asked him that, and he effectively said, yes, it will. And it's logical, isn't it? Really, it I is mean, absolutely I, logical. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's the joy of railways. We've we've both known it for thirty years now. Um, people kind of read and hear what they want to read and hear, not necessarily what they're told. <laughs> so you know, well, they're- that's a <laughs> that's a very good way of putting it. Other stuff that um, I wanted to pick up on, and just briefly in passing, was and I had to smile at one of your comments: that staff transferring for the DFT. It hadn't occurred to me. But, of course, it would occur to you because you had exactly this when the SRA set up, I suppose, that you had uh, civil servants 2P over to you from from the department. I had to smile when you asked him if he was looking forward to welcoming Peter Wilkinson into the team. Beautiful um, answer, though, wasn't it? He I mean, was. I, I, he's a class <laughs> act, isn't he? He's a class it's act. It's so different. Well, Tupi's tube, a thing. You know, it's, it it's is. the law. I, again, I hadn't thought of it. His analogy about London buses was a really good one. Um, that 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 he said the Lord Hendy has pointed out, or he would do if he was here, that all London buses are red. The only way you know which private operator it is, I think, is as a a little white label down by the bottom of the door. But yeah. otherwise, they're all, so you, your question, I think you, I think you did ask him about what about a unified brand for say intercity. Um, he tended to shy away from that, didn't well, he? Well, I went a bit further. I was a bit naughty. I said, you know, a unified brand like 
almost like British Rail, right? Blue and, he and did, gray. He, he absolutely shied away from that and talked about a continuum with two extremes. And he basically said that neither extreme will happen. And I, that was that. It was it, it was a good recovery, right? It was a great recovery. But it did make me think, you know, if you are more towards the concession end, so away from the revenue risk end, because he made a brilliant point. He said nobody would know how to price revenue risk at the moment anyway, right? So well, they if never did. Well, okay. But they did, whether they did or whether they didn't, they definitely can't do now. So if we're at that concession end of things, you increasingly start to go, well, okay, so what risk are these contractors taking in return for these, you know, uh, for, for these um, management fees? And you can kind of see where you go too far down that, right? And you go, what? What is really the point, right? So it's a, it's a, it was a fascinating area, and I felt it was the one bit of the conversation where there was almost like, like oh, flipping neck moment, you know. But listen, as he, he rightly said, nothing's decided um, on that. But I think that is going to be an area of considerable discussion over the coming months, it, whatever. It will, and, he, and he didn't disagree. In fact, I think he agreed when I made that comment about Fifty Shades of franchising. Yeah, well. One very good, important point he made throughout the entire discussion was let's not just get rigid thinking into one size fits all. And that wasn't just about franchising, it was about other aspects as well. And hurrah to that, because if you get too rigid, then it, it becomes it, it, that becomes a real problem. And a very important point he made, and again, I hadn't particularly noticed it, and I want to have a look and a bit more of a think about it and see if I agree with it, was how much he said there's much in common between Conservative and Labour in the core of what they're doing. And you might approach various aspects, like how you provide the passenger service, be it privately or publicly, but the actual core of what we're talking about, a, a, a BR board two or whatever we're going to call it, to be at the core of it, delivering a railway, um, and that that should go through in any case and is capable of being moulded to whoever government follows. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody would dispute moving franchising uh, or concession management, whatever it's called, away from central government into an arms length body. I mean, if you, if, you, if you don't believe that, then really, then I think you've got a bit of an issue. That's right. And my, yeah. my final point on this, and I guess we'd better move on to the news then, is that Andrew said a few times um, he's not presuming he'll have anything to do with a new organisation, which obviously he has to say, for my money, whatever follows, I should be monumentally disappointed. I think the railway will suffer if Andrew's not running it. Well, I like you, I've known Andrew a long, long time, and, and I hope this doesn't sound sort of patronising in any way, but but he's grown and grown and grown. It, uh, I, I mean, as a, as, a, as a leader, as a... An ambassador as a you know a driver, and and actually no, I I agree with you. I think it would be um I like like I said in the interview. I I hope you're going to be with us for a while. Yeah, absolutely. He is the classiest of uh, of, of class acts, and he also made that point. And we will move on that him and Peter, the Lord Hendy, uh, want to be the last chairman and chief exec of Network Rail. Well, I guess I guess that opens the path for for the Lord Hendy to be the chair of what follows as well. Then doesn't it? Well, who knows? But uh, they, they um. I think they will get their wish. Whatever happens, I think they will get their wish, which would be good, wouldn't it? Let's hope so. Okay. Biggest news this week, local leaders are to receive, we are told, £4.7 billion to transform transport across the North and the Midlands. 
It was announced on Monday the 26th, and Rishi Sunak called it levelling up in action. Right. The local transport fund will inc- improve local connections. It was said that local leaders in smaller cities, towns and rural areas will be empowered for the first time to invest in transport upgrades that matter the most to their communities. It comes alongside £8.3 billion to resurface roads across the country, £1 billion to improve bus services in the North and Midlands, and £200 million to extend the £2 bus fare cap across England, all from reallocated HS2 funding. OK, Richard, we need to draw on your expertise here. Because um, my understanding, this is about HS2 funding now, there's been a lot of talk about it on on social media this week, particularly on Twitter, is that there? I've always said, and I've wrote, wrote as much in rail many times, that there isn't a door somewhere in the Treasury that's got a label on it saying HS2 cash, and it's piled with gold inside um, that's there to pay for HS2, and they take a wheelbarrow of it away every now and then <laughs> when, when they place another contract. But you said before that technically you can reallocate, though you still have to have a business case. Now, my understanding always was, um, and I just wonder if I've been wrong all these years, that the borrowing to pay for HS2 or any other big infrastructure project was predicated on the returns that come from the value when it's completed. Um, no. I've been wrong. Have I been wrong in that? Uh, on that last statement, I'm afraid so. Okay. You're, you're not wrong. In fact, you're absolutely right. Hooray! That, that the, <laughs> there isn't. Uh, a vault in the treasury uh, with um, a post-it note on the door that says HS2 money and loads of cash behind it, right? But let, let's just let's just unpack this a bit because you're you're totally right that yesterday uh, social media, especially uh, Twitter, was flooded by people actually quite dismissive of anybody who kind of had held the alternate view that that money could be reallocated. They were really quite some really quite sort of strong comments. So let's let's just understand how government funding works. And actually, at its highest level, it's really rather simple, right? So the Treasury takes all the receipts that they know they're going to get, which is basically tax, right? And then they look at all the, spend, the, the spending commitments that they've got. And what's left, the difference between those two numbers is either a surplus or it's a borrowing requirement, right? That's, okay. That's it, right? Now, what the Treasury like to do is they like to retain flexibility. They don't like entering into long-term, multi-year commitments where some of their expenditure commitments have already been predetermined before they even get there. They don't really like that. They like short-term flexibility. Now, sometimes, though, they can be um, brought to give long-term commitments on capital projects, particularly, that, that that do extend over a long period of time. It's going to go on a, li- a while to build, like well, HS2. Like HS2, like aircraft carriers, you know, stuff like that. You can't just start and then go next year, oh, actually, I haven't got – no, you, you've got to commit to them, and then you've got to stick with them if, you, if you're going to get um, them delivered. Now, I don't know if the future expenditure on HS2 in five years, 10 years, 15 years was all going to be by borrowing. Probably it will because of the amounts and because of the state of public finances. But it could easily easily be done from surpluses. We don't know, right? Um, It just depends on what that particular year or that group of years uh, receipts minus expenditure calculation says, right? Um, But I definitely 
don't think that you ever borrow against a specific stream of benefits. Now, what a government will do in committing to HS2, there's a business case, and the government says, yeah, we're back in that. That's absolutely fine. How they then fund the annual commitments in terms of funding, that's, that's a totally separate matter. You know, if it's borrowing, then debt is debt. There's no collateral against the loan. So you don't borrow money against a specific stream of benefits. Um, in cancelling HS2, the Treasury have avoided, if you like, the HS2 long-term commitments, right? Those are now out of their kind of future forecast. So they can do one of, probably one of three things. They can commit to something else, right? Uh, they can not commit to anything at all and get all that flexibility back. Or more likely, they can commit to some other stuff, but actually mop their poor fevered brows going, thank goodness for that. Because actually, um, the, there's a, was a worsening position in terms of public finances in the future. And by cancelling HS2, they've probably avoided that getting really bad and they've actually got some flexibility back. So I think it's probably a bit of a hybrid. So the notion you cannot reallocate money, I'm afraid, is wrong because it's not as complicated as people think. But you can't, surely you can't just say, right, we're going to take that and spend it on whatever we like. No, you, no, you Kelly can't. Kelly said that you've got to go through the scrutiny and business case and everything else. Yes, you, you do. Thank God I was but, right about that, at yeah, least for that then. But even then, that's quite interesting, right? So... So just on the you can't reallocate money business, I mean, just to give an example of what the Treasury can do, right, let's just say you have decided to go on holiday to, I don't know, you're going to go to the Canary Islands, you, the holiday of a lifetime, huh. it's going to cost you a £1,000 for a week or whatever, you've got it in your budget, you decided to do it, uh, and you've paid your money or you made your commitment. And then near the time, because you were smart and you paid the um, extra so you could get all your money back if you decided not to go, you decide not to go, right? Um, for whatever reason, can you use that £1,000 to, to spend it on something else? Of course you can, right? You don't even need to spend it on another holiday. <laughs> you can spend it on whatever you like, right? Two-pound bus fares or potholes. It's exactly the same, right? So there's no real difference to that. Okay. But on your business case point, I was looking at the local transport fund guidance it's it's a little bit of a kind of a snooze fest if i suffer from insomnia and i'll probably go back to it but it what is clear is that under this local transport fund some of the business case duties will be delegated down to local transport authorities and local transport wards combined authorities to actually do the work but they'll still have to meet they'll still have to use dft transport appraisal criteria they can use other criteria as well they'll have to publish their um, their findings, their business cases, so people can challenge them. So you're absolutely right. They can't go off and spend it willy-nilly. But these, I think, unless somebody tells me otherwise, I think these reallocations, in principle, are real. Okay. Um, going right back to the head of the conversation, at least in a big project, you said the Treasury will give assurances that if it's an aircraft carrier or an airport or something that's going to take several years then there will be comfort given that the money will be there to, do, to to pay for it when you need it. What you're saying now, I suppose there's nothing to guarantee that these reallocations won't get reallocated again or even cancelled in the future and not happened, not happen at all. Well, yeah, I, I think that is right. And also what I have not done, I don't know if anybody's done, is, is test what ministers have said. They've said that every single penny 
of the money saved from HS2 will be spent on local stuff. You know, the, 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 um, and they made state. I, I have not done a pound for pound match okay. to make sure that's right. Um, but uh, governments come and go, policies come and go, cuts come. You know, the, I think the real risk here is once the Ferrari has died down a bit, the ability to go back in the future and look back and say, yeah, every penny of that 36 billion found its way into a project will be get, will be get less and less easy to do. So there's a real risk that it's a little bit, bit like water on sand. Over time, it'll be, it, the, the audit trail will become very complicated. Plus, of course, we've got a general election coming and it is a constitutional convention, is it not, that an incoming government is not bound by the commitments of its predecessor? Well, in, in policy terms, uh, yeah, I mean, the, but the incoming government will have to do something positive to change that. And, and, and actually, the incoming Labour government, if that's what it is, has already said that, you know, devolution is very important, driving budgets down to local levels is very important, and they've been quite studious in avoiding saying, and we're going to re-resurrect HS2. In fact, if anything, they said that's going to be very hard to do. So I, I, I'm not sure we've gone i think we've probably gone through a gate that only opens on one side i'm afraid but we'll see so we've both had a bit of humble pie to eat there this last uh this epi- couple of episodes richard um andrew andrew haynes explained to you why you were wrong on a couple of things yesterday as listeners to the podcast will hear and and now you've explained to me why i was wrong about that so there's a certain balance in the green signals um <laughs> judgments there so one chap who knows all about the challenges of HS2 funding and trying to get clarity over what comes next in the light of HS2 cancellation decision is Henry Murison, Chief Executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. Um, we are delighted that Henry's been able to join us today um, from a from a quite bustling conference at Manchester Central, I think. So um, welcome, Henry. A tran- and, and a transport conference, nonetheless. I'm at Interchange, so lovely to join you. Jolly good. Let's hope that somebody doesn't burst through the curtains behind you at, uh, at, at some point. Okay, let's get into it. Look, on the Today programme early this week, on the 26th, I think it was, you were extremely direct, and welcome, so in my eyes, in your remarks that the expenditure announced by the government was nothing new at all, simply a re-announcement of what's been said in October last year. Surely, though, it will still be welcomed by local transport authorities as you and they get to spend the money on what's needed and wanted locally? I think all the money is welcome. And in fact, I said very positively that I was really glad that they got the money. What I had an issue with was the Prime Minister was going around claiming it was transformational. And funnily enough, just you want to transform the northern economy, as in close the productivity gap with London, a few electric charging points and a couple of new bus stations are not going to cut it. And then the related issue is that and I also got into this with uh, with the Today programme, that they were lecturing local governments, saying it was really important to consult local communities and business about how they were going to spend the money. And considering the fact that me and the chief executive of Business London, John Dickey, wrote to the Prime Minister every day to ask for a meeting during Tory conference when we were about uh, 150 metres away from him a lot of the time while he was in his hotel room. And we were denied a meeting. Bev Craig and Andy Burnham, uh, from this city, from Manchester, who asked for a meeting. Um, and, and being back in Manchester Central today and yesterday, I have been slightly triggered by my memories of that period 
and, and the idea that the government would lecture anyone about consulting and engaging people in major decisions about their, their area, it, it just really jarred with me, Nigel, to be honest. And I, I, was, <laughs> I, I found it, I found it, uh, I found it really didn't meet, meet my aspirations for the government and what I would have hoped they would have done. So uh, you, and, you and Andy Burnham and lots of others asked for meetings and just got no answer, no, no engagement at all? Not at all. Not, Andy Street got a meeting, but because okay. he's a Conservative, um, the, didn't meet the rest of us. <laughs> okay, I, I thought you might add that little bit at the end there. Um, one of the other points that you made in that interview on the on Today programme was also, because um, the consultation point or lack of really hit home with me, but you also said, it's great to announce all this transport stuff at local but we're still waiting for clarity on northern powerhouse rail, particularly sort of Liverpool to Manchester. I mean, wh wh why why do you need that clarity from government, and what do you think is holding it up? Well, George Osborne, just down the road from here, again in Manchester, there's a very strong Manc theme today. I, I, hasten to add, I don't live here. <laughs> I'm not just obsessed with Manchester. It just happens to be about Manchester today. Um, announced northern powerhouse rail, then called HS3, would happen across the Pennines. And we're 10 years later, we don't yet have a confirmed route. And yeah. funnily enough, that's quite a problem. If Northern Powerhouse Rail is the key enabler for in improving the travel to work areas of our northern cities so that you can commute. At the moment, 90% of people who live in West Yorkshire work in West Yorkshire. Whereas if you look at the proximity of Manchester to cities like Bradford, large numbers of people could and should be able to work here and vice versa, but they just don't currently. And that's a real economic problem. So I'm really keen to get the section between right. uh, Manchester Piccadilly through the airport to High Lee back. And at the moment, we've got a hybrid bill in Parliament that's sat doing nothing because, bluntly, we haven't got, we haven't got certainty on the route. Yes, I can see that's a difficulty. And one of the arguments, of course, was exactly about um, the shared section from the airport to Piccadilly. Um, it's been suggested by some that it's just not viable. NPR isn't viable without that shared infrastructure. Is that the reality? What's holding up the announcement on NPR and without HS2 Phase 2B, will the business case for NPR ever stack up? I mean, it depends how you do the appraisal, right? So there are transformative benefits from connecting Liverpool and Warrington with Yorkshire and with the, particularly with the North East and Hull. Um, now you've put Hull and Bradford back in, that does improve the business case. So I have every hope that when we redo the appraisal, that never mind what the BCR is, but we'll be able to make a strong strategic case. And of course, it was the Prime Minister who changed the Green Book to move away from rigid BCR methodology. Uh, but we haven't actually seen any of that flow through yet, the Department of Transport. So this might be a bit of a test case. I think the the related issue is that what is delaying this is, I think, a lack of uh, support really for those ministers who have been engaging with us. I mean, Hugh Merriman has been working tirelessly on this issue, and I, I referenced that when I was on the Today programme this week. And we need the Treasury, we need Number 10 to get behind Hugh and get this decision made. Uh, and I have every confidence that with a rail minister who does genuinely care about the north of England, who, despite all the other changes, got Bradford back on the map, that we have every chance to make sure that this side of the election there is certainty for the north of England about. Yes, both parties are promising Northern Powerhouse Rail, but what actually is Northern Powerhouse Rail? Because until there's a route, you can promise anything you want. Uh, but at the moment, it doesn't add up to anything if there's no way to get the trains from Warrington through to Manchester, uh, and particularly to connect Manchester Airport, which is a fundamental part of the business case, because it has transformative economic benefits for Yorkshire, 
to have better global links as well as the improved links to the cities in the northwest themselves. Just pivoting away then, finally, from Northern Powers Rail to the Birmingham to Manchester connection or Manchester-Birmingham, whichever way you want to want to look at it, because that too was vital for levelling up and uh, regional connectivity. And the cancellation of Phase 2A and Phase 2B has really thrown that into doubt. We've got massive issues of capacity on the West Coast Main Line now, and they're going to get worse. Um, Mayors Andy Burnham and Andy Street have been working on a new plan for Birmingham, Manchester. Are you, are you aware of what's coming out of that? And do you know whether Phase 2A, the alignment that has got statute, has got an act of parliament, is going to be used as part of that? Because it kind of strikes us as a bit odd if it's not. I mean, it's a matter for the two mayors uh, to speak to that work. I'm a huge supporter of it, have been since the very beginning. Uh, and many of the business involved, we've been supporting in every way we can, whether that be Arab or some of the other businesses that have, have put their energies behind it. Arcade is another example. So I think we'll uh, hear more on the specifics of route alignments in the coming weeks and months. But what I would say is I think that this approach, which brings together regional leaders to have a stake in national decision making, is exactly the right approach. And I think that what this isn't, however, is just recreating HS2. Because clearly, the approaches and the delivery models used could be significantly different. So whether or not existing parts of the consented route could or could not be used in some of the different options, it doesn't mean it would be delivered in the same way. Okay. Um, although we, we quite passionately believe that as there's a route there with the, the Act of Parliament ready, it would be madness not to use it in anything else. is going to add 10 years, isn't it, in terms of a route? Well, I think that's a question for Andy Street and Andy Burnham. Okay, okay, fine, fair enough. Look, <laughs> thanks ever so much for your time, Henry. We really appreciate it. And perhaps you'd come back at some point in the not-too-distant future to talk about NPR more wide, widely and Transpennine and a whole host of other fascinating subjects we'd like to get into. I'd be absolutely delighted. I really look forward to it. We'll look forward to that too. But for now, thanks a lot, Henry, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Cheers, Henry. Thank you. Okay, well, look, moving on to um, Avanti West Coast and the story that hit the headlines last week, um, Nigel, because if you remember about the this I menopause uh, gift bag, um, and we uh, discussed it on the last week's show how this all came about. So it, it appeared to start with a tweet uh, with Aslef um, tweeting a picture of the card inside that detailed its contents, um, including, for example, you know, tissue if you're feeling a bit emotional paperclip to help you keep it all together and jelly baby in case you feel like biting someone's head off and as left called the packs a, an insulting gimmick national media got all excited and it, it kind of all got a bit of a hand so we thought it'd be really useful to get some actual experts on this subject to come and chat to us um, about it i think people are really interested in, yeah. in this i think there's more to this story than met the eye so we're delighted to say um that we're able to welcome um Amanda Young, who's the head of employee experience from Avanti West Coast, and Amantha King, who is a leading workplace menopause consultant, um, who wrote a brilliant post on LinkedIn in response to the media furore that we we all saw. We all was really good. I did that, didn't it? Did so. Welcome to Amanda and Amantha. You're Thank most you. you're most welcome Thank on you. Green Signals. Can I also apologise in advance of the inevitability of calling one of you by the wrong name? <laughs> yes. Well, welcome to the world of Nigel. Right. Okay. 
Okay, look, let's get let's let's get straight into it. Um, let's let's set the scene if we can, um, Amanda, um, for Avanti West Coast. Can you just give us a bit? Just set the scene. What was the background to this? How how did this um, this initiative come about? So the initiative um, was an idea of one of our gender network um, colleagues, um, a woman who is um, going through perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms at the moment, um, who um, was putting together um, a support programme for the business around menopause, the first of its kind, actually, um, across the West Coast and um, took place in July last year. Um, and her idea was to to develop these um, bags as a takeaway at the end of the event. So we had colleagues, um, including men, women from our frontline drivers, onboard staff and HQ who were invited to these drop-in sessions around menopause. And um, these takeaway items, these, these menopause bags, were given at the end of the session as a reminder of the support that is available, um, but also um, kind of as a reminder that some of the symptoms that we sometimes see um, around menopause are common. So, so not in any way to kind of trivialise um, some of those symptoms, but as a reminder that there is help available and there is support available. So they were given out at the end of the sessions. And our understanding was that this was this has been quite well received. You mentioned this was in July last year, so this has been going for quite a while. Yeah, they have been really well received. And I, and I think it's it, it's because of the context around it. Um, these were not given out in isolation. Um, these were not given out as part of a company policy. These were given out at the end of a session when people had the opportunity to come together, listen, talk, share with each other. So they were seen as as, as more of a, a takeaway and support right. that people were available and listening. Um We've had, you know, it's important to say that we've had really, really good response from the support groups and the support around menopause um, to date with people saying that they're really kind of grateful for people volunteering their time in the business as well to kind of support and offer okay. advice to others. So they have been quite well received. Were, well, I guess you must have been rather surprised. Um, and I wondered whether you're actually quite irritated um, when Aslef posted what they did on social media, did you have any idea that that was coming? Have they shared any concerns with you prior to that? I was also surprised it was it was not a new initiative that it had been. It was quite quite old, quite an old not old. It was a mature scheme. It wasn't a, a new one. Yeah. Um, no, we. You know, as far as as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any um, kind of conversations with Aslef around this, and it'd be it'd be kind of wrong for me to speculate as to reasons why and why now, um, especially as there've been no complaints internally um, either from. The, the time that we first introduced in July last year, or since all of the media coverage around this, um, if anything, quite the opposite um, in terms of the written feedback we've had from from colleagues. So, um, yeah, um, am I angry? No, it's 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 always disappointing, isn't it, to receive um, kind of negative negative feedback. But you know, as a learning organisation, we've got to take that on the chin and and recognise that this is part of a journey. You know, we we are on a journey to become. I mean, we we say you know a menopause friendly organization but this is about being menopause competent and you know there is not a one size fits all for everybody and you know if there was a magic pill around engagement or inclusion then you know we'd all be very rich you know the fact is that we, we've got to adapt our approach to suit the many different people that we have in our business this was one approach and it just gives us pause for thought I suppose to kind of reflect on our that, approach going forward that's a perfect moment right just at that point and um, we say to, to bring Amantha in. Uh, so Amantha, you're um, a workplace menopause consultant. C can you just, just explain 
what that actually involves kind of you know what what what's the, what are the things that you do when you're supporting people with this stuff okay so may i just say thanks so much for having me on and and also i'd just like to frame this from a personal context as well um that i am a postmenopausal woman um i became perimenopausal at 36 with a 2 year old i was perimenopausal wow. for 16 years so I used my menopause experience. I, I'm formally trained in the pharmaceutical industry. I used to sell hormone replacement therapy. Uh, little did I know that the, this would become my reality uh, all these years later, but I'm, I'm very glad it is. So I go into businesses to create competent menopause cultures, and I'm really clear about that word. I don't like the process of accreditation. Um, accreditation, uh, you know, my husband says to me, you can accredit concrete life jackets. It doesn't mean they're fit for purpose. The reality is we, we go into businesses and we help raise awareness, first of all, open up the conversation. You know, when you look at data, we know that people just aren't talking about menopause. 90% of people with female biology say they will not speak to their manager about this topic. So there is a veil of silence. So we go in and we remove that veil through awareness. And we have three-step programs called Create, Develop, Build, where we create awareness from the top down. So literally from the CEO right down to people at the front line. We then develop managers so that they can have compassionate, open conversations, which are EDI sensitive. So equality, diversity and inclusive. Um, and we also have menopause champions, people in organisations that can be that signposter and that supporter. And then lastly, we finish with guidance. And it really is last because most people only lean into guidance when something has gone wrong. And most of us know that policies either sit on a dashboard or sit in a drawer or on a computer file. They rarely get used unless something has gone wrong. I understand that Avanti have had uh, an accredited program of menopause awareness. I honestly believe it maybe didn't go far enough, which I know is, a, is another point. It didn't go far enough in helping those very amazing volunteers who I celebrate massively, which is why I put my post out. I just don't think they were supported enough to go, do you know what, sense check, could anyone have a problem with this, whether internally or externally? And I'm sure even though maybe people haven't said, there might be some people like myself who, like I say, having had a 16-year experience, might have thought that that just trivialised the topic a okay. little bit. Okay, so, so one of the things that was great about your LinkedIn post, that you, it was so balanced. So you were very, the first thing you did was praise Avanti for the, for the great work that, um, uh, you know, Amanda and the team have done. But then you also said it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Could, could you just, um, you know, in sort of summary, just explain a little bit what, what you meant by that? Okay, so in my opinion, and first of all, I still stand by that. I think hats off to Avanti. You are... Um, I said one in 30, you know, 30% of organizations are doing some work around this. It's actually worse than that. It's um, CIPD data. I rechecked it yesterday. It's about 24%. Um, so I think the fact there was an opportunity, I think it maybe didn't go far enough. And I'll tell you why. I think it would have been really helpful to have a very, um, a stakeholder group, someone who could oversee what this group were doing so that, you know, it has to pass the red face test internally, but externally as well. Um, I'm, I'm working with Helen Tomlinson, who is the national menopause champion assigned by the government. And we're looking for best case studies. We're looking for best practice. 
And best practice, as Amanda rightly says, this is a learning opportunity. I guess the learning opportunity is how do we protect volunteers who are giving their own time so that this sort of thing doesn't happen? So <clears throat> recognise then that uh, Avanti West Coast do deserve credit for at least addressing this and with some enthusiasm, clearly. Um, I mean, what would you suggest specifically should have been done differently? Was it something as simple as somebody in the room when the discussion was going on saying, hang on, um, you know, how's this going to play more widely? It's the, if you like the challenging, the sceptical voice in the room, uh, did, did did the meeting just get a bit carried away by its own enthusiasm? I don't know what what could have been done differently for a better outcome. So, from my perspective, I I believe it comes down to the original accreditation. I believe if you're buying training in, is that training going to give a level of competency to the people who are going to use it? Um, I've been training all my working life and training means nothing unless you can see it in action, see what people actually do with it, because that's where you gauge competency. And that's why I still stand by the, the term uh, menopause friendly accreditation. What does that mean? Um, you know, menopause competence means that we have people being supported. We don't have people going to tribunals. We have people feeling like they're valued in an organisation. So, Amanda, I mean, just hearing this I mean, look I, I i the message i'm getting out of all this is avanti's done a fantastic job yeah. right a really a, a, when you look at what is going on elsewhere uh, you know there's clearly a passion there was clearly a desire i mean you're supporting your people which is brilliant what what now when you kind of i suppose for your next um pile of stuff i mean uh, that, that you do the, ne the next initiatives that you do Will you will you build some of this in perhaps, or sort of look to to do it in a slightly different way? I mean, presumably they have, uh, every every opportunity is a learning opportunity, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and um, it's it's great to um, to kind of hear the 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 range of um, support um, that Amantha um, has has kind of shared there, and and I think it's important to put this into context. So when we talk about menopause friendly accreditation, we're on a journey to look at what are the specific elements that we need to kind of achieve and reach. It's less about the accreditation; that's just the end product, isn't it? That's mm -hmm. I think I think I'm, I'm totally with you, Amantha, in in having these shiny awards or accreditations do little um, in some ways to to really um, uh, kind of make clear the kind of environment um, that, that we have in place within a business. Um, but what it has done in looking at that accreditation process is it's allowed us to have a look at the way we communicate. It's allowed us to look at some of the support mechanisms we have in place. And for an organisation um, kind of starting out, because, you know, Let's be fair that, you know, we are quite young to this. It's not even been one full year that we've been doing some support around this. It's given us a bit of a guide and a framework. And, um, you know, you talked about menopause matters. You talked about those leaflets. All of that information is available um, at our support sessions. So um, there was access to books. There's access to leaflets. Um, there has been talks. There has been web, um, webinars. We haven't introduced any formal training. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, my view is pace doesn't always equal progress. 
this, we have to make sure that we are involving people as we we, we kind of go along um, this journey. So all of that is available. Um, and also we have a menopause library. So, so you know, um, colleagues can come, whether it is for their own kind of personal education awareness to support others as managers within our business, or actually individuals themselves that are going through um, through um, the menopause or have perimenopausal symptoms, um, that is available um, to them as part of that. Um, I mean, you, you talk about things, Amantha, like, like fans and things. Um, we've listened to what people have said. So we have a range of different support available. So if somebody does want um, a portable fan, if somebody, you know, a member of any of our, um, our, our colleagues or somebody who is working on a train and they felt feel that's useful, that support that we'll be able to provide. Um, but I think it is that approach that, as we said, there isn't a one size fits all. This is a perfect time for us to stop and review how far we've come. And, you know, I'm proud of the support and the volunteers that we have in our business. And we're really wanting to drive this forward. This is not a top down initiative or policy just to look good. This is about it being meaningful and people within our business sharing their lived experience. And, you know, some may use humour. Um, so I can see how I'm um, kind of looking at this and looking at the bags that, you know, it, 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 you know, for some people that 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 feels that it's some way trivialised it. Um, I think there's an opportunity to review that, but that was never the intention. Um, you know, we have reached out to menopause experts. We are looking at the range of support we're, we're, we're offering. I think this is a perfect time to start um, thinking about what we what we do in this space and, and really building on um, some of the webinars, some of the talks, the private safe space that we've created for colleagues to come together to talk, to continue with the support sessions and just kind of reflect on and enhance um, the journey that we've already started to become more inclusive as an employer, really. Amantha, yeah. um, how sort of, I mean, look, in, in 40 years as a journalist and 28 years on rail, this is the first conversation in business terms I've had about the menopause. Um, I mean, how widespread in the rail industry is the sort of initiatives that, um, that Amanda and Avanti West Coast are doing? Are they, are they, are they, are they, are they sort of spearheading um, this or are there, are there other companies doing it? How, how many companies are active? So um, I can't speak for anyone else, but we're working with two uh, currently. Um, we're working for a provider for rail in Wales. And what I would like to say, I'd just like to come back on what Amanda said. Amanda, I think it is absolutely brilliant. I love the fact that your organisation is so engaged. Um, I think I just feel for them, really. I really feel for th really feel for them. But to, to come back to, to that question, um, we are seeing, and this is maybe something that I just want to put into the mix, which is that actually menopause doesn't just affect women and people with female biology. We see a massive impact on men in rail. Uh, we're working with a rail provider with 4,000 employees, and we are providing menopause sessions for men. We're providing andropause sessions for men because... Uh, we've had a lot of testimony. We've had a lot of uh, managers. We're doing a, a, a really big process of training managers. And most managers will tell you that the targets for recruiting women into rail are, are tough. Um, I think currently 16% of all, all rail are women. So it's ambitious targets. Now, what we know is the biggest group that are leaving are the 45 upward group. And there's oh, the, the, it's a leaky bucket. We have got people leaving this industry en masse um, and we don't have enough women and people with female biology coming into the business. You'll notice even the terminology I'm using, women, people, people with female biology. 
This is very, very important. But if I just give you a small, a small story, which is that actually we know that um, some drivers um, have um, have actually confided in the safe spaces that Amanda talks about, um, have broken down in our sessions saying how they don't want to go home of an evening, they're not sleeping. So we have reduced levels of alertness. We have drivers, male drivers with reduced levels of alertness because they are sleeping next to a partner who isn't sleeping, who's got the covers off, covers on, they're, they're going to the toilet at night, windows are open, windows are closed, the, the relationship is breaking down. If I do one thing in active service for the rail industry today is to say menopause affects everybody 100%, whether you are male or female. Thank you so much for your time. We're going to have to uh, draw it to a close there. But that that is, as Nigel said, that's a subject which I think many, many people listening to this That'll be the first time they've yeah. heard any of that. And and hopefully, if we've achieved one thing, as, as, as you said, Amantha, it's just bringing that to a wider audience and, and it affects everybody. Amantha King, Amanda Young, thank you so much for your time. Just saying again, hats off to Avanti. You, that is a, yeah. you, learn, you learn so. We now know what really happened. Um, but also, I think we all know that we can uh, learn from this and do do other things in the future thank you so Absolutely. much thanks for having thanks. me pleasure thank, thank you. you on to the quiz uh so last week's question was this who said i am never sure of time or place upon a railroad i can't read i can't think i can't sleep i can only dream rattling along in this railway carriage in a state of luxurious confusion i take it for granted i am coming from somewhere and going somewhere else I know nothing about myself. For anything I know, I may be coming from the moon. Now, the winner was Andrew uh, QT8UM. <laughs> so I, I don't know about the last bit, but it's Andrew. So well done, Andrew, because it was, of course, Charles Dickens. Um, and it's a quote from Railway Dreaming, which is a collection of essays and extracts from Charles Dickens' writings on the topic of railways and their impact on their arrival. Uh, in society, a slightly trick question in respect of the misdirect um, prompted by the use of railroad. Yeah, so I wonder like whether that. it was some huge American railroad magnate. Or yeah, okay. Uh, well, quite quite a few people got it. They it, did. it was a bit trickier. I, I have a I have a confession. Go on. Can't stand Dickens. Can you not? No, I find it. I find it dull, depressing. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan. Let, but it's the, good, but it's, let the floodgates open. Well, that's all right. I, I'm sure he wasn't a fan of me, but, but you know, um, do you know he was? He was his connection with railways is quite interesting. He was in the Staplehurst rail crash, mm-hmm. and it and it affected him so deeply. He, he never really recovered. I think he died something like five years to the day afterwards. Or something he like did, that. Yeah. and in uh, LTC Rolt's seminal legendary book Red for Danger. Um, Rolt postulates that that crash cost us the end to the mystery of Edwin Drood. There you go. I know. I know what you mean, Richard. About it, where Dickens is in. Try reading a Christmas Carol. I'd say tooth. You know about the the door knocker and they just dead as a. His description is out of this world. Where he utterly excels is in the name of his characters, Old Fezziwig. You know. <laughs> 
he's you know his his names Nicholas Nickleby. You instantly get he, he was fantastic at putting names. Very alliterative um, names, aren't they? No, no, I agree. Um, but yeah. you know, but to to, to to people, but um, yeah. right. So um, yeah. Biker, anyway, Biker that, doesn't on... like Dickens. No, I think I never found those kind of writers I, I i did thomas hardy mayor of casterbridge for my o-level text and i find it the most utterly depressing thing in the world it, that sort of slightly depressing uh, everything's going to go wrong sort of stuff is very dreek as they'd say in, uh, there you go anyway go on then. Let, let's <laughs> who move knew, on who knew green signals would be a sort of a, a literary literary review now this week's question uh and we thought we'd stick with the theme of quotes um it's a two-part of this, so you actually need to know two names, and it is a bit racy. Oh, yeah. Now we haven't got a bleep machine on um, green signals because we you, haven't got the, the budget. Doesn't stretch to that. Are you going to swear? Are you going to swear? No, no, because my dad listens. He's a regular listener, and and there'll be a world of pain if I do that. So if you say this word to everybody. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to have to in, intersperse some stars. All right. You'll get it. Don't worry. How you do right. that audibly, I'm not sure, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. Well, here you go. I'll have a go. Right. So who is alleged to have said the following and to whom? Or about, uh, about. whom? Yeah. So oh, about that's, whom. that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Here's it. Quote, I'll be in my grave before that's F star, 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 uh. <laughs> Get it? Gets his logo on my trains. Who said that? About so, whom? I'll be in my grave before that's F star 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 uh gets his logo on my trains. If you know the answers, because it is this time, uh, let us know Twitter, uh, YouTube, whatever. Um, and um, first correct answer gets a shout out. There you go. Green signals goes racy. <laughs> well, you know, absolutely. There you oh, go. Okay, well, let's do our usual ending on on some bits and pieces of positive stories, which you may not have picked up in the national media. And uh, I realise we, we, it's possible we might trigger Richard on this one. Um, but the Five Mile Leavenmouth branch closed many years ago on the north bank of the Firth of Forth in Scotland, has been relayed, and I think the training crews, and he's going to reopen. The 100-day countdown to the rail return begins. So we're just 100 days to go until rail services to Leavenmouth. The Cabinet Secretary for Transport in Scotland, Fiona Hislop, switched on an official countdown clock on February 23rd at Edinburgh Waverley to mark the milestone. Countdown clocks were also unveiled at the new stations in Leven and Cameron Bridge, ahead of ScotRail services starting on June the 2nd. The Scottish Government funded £116, £116 million Leavenmouth Rail Link project we'll see a new six-mile, it's five to five and six-mile, double-track line connect, reconnect the five communities to the railway after a gap of 55 years. It's a brilliant project, and we're delighted they're so close to opening it. So let's move on to Florence then, and I'm not talking about the famous little girl in the Magic Roundabout who you are certainly old enough to remember, Richard. Charming. Charming. I I, Favourite character? I always used to like Dylan the Rabbit. Yeah, I like Zebedee because I like the boing in the spring. Yeah, yeah. Mm. there's no, 
And it's not because Dylan was always stoned. I just liked his laid back approach. To life. <laughs> yeah, there's absolutely no connection there whatsoever. No. <laughs> Brilliant voice voiceovers though, weren't they, by Eric Thompson, who's the who was the late father of the famous actress Emma Thompson. Didn't know that. There you go. Because when the people are good at that, they're brilliant. Johnny Morris on Animal Magic was another one, but hey, we diverse. (laughs) Florence is one of HS2's TBMs, Tunnel Boring Machines. Um, And it's broken through, as the saying goes. Um, She's no lightweight. The 2,000-ton machine was named after Florence Nightingale um, by some school, school children in Buckinghamshire, I understand. So well done to them. Anyway, Florence has completed her 10-mile journey under the Cotswolds to... Um... Sorry? You say the Cotswolds? Did I? You mean the Chilterns? Is that not what I said? No. If you, I'll tell you what. Imagine how hard it's been to get permission to build a tunnel under the Chilterns, right? Yeah. If you try to do that under the Cotswolds, now, it, yeah. You... <laughs> Look. It, wow. began, it began with a C, and my brain just ran ahead. Thank you. Actually, I could tell you that it was it was deliberate, and I was testing you whether you were alert. Absolutely, everybody would believe you. Yeah, yeah. Oh. and you passed the test, so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure. This is a major ten mile milestone, greeted, of course, by the usual chorus of claptrap on social media from those either too lazy or, let's be honest, too thick to understand what HS two could actually do for the country. But those of us who do, and we count ourselves in that number, do we not, Richard? Um, we celebrate it nonetheless. Yeah, the images, so, were, the images were amazing, by the way, and they're, yes. they're all over social media. So, yeah, yeah cool always, stuff. I mean, I can't get my head around, and I particularly thought this when they were building Crossrail, as it theirs was, because if you looked at the fly-throughs, the three-dimensional fly-throughs, the TBMs went over tubes and under sewers and round stations and all the rest of it. And then they'll come through to the centimetre circle painted on the wall in the chamber of the station. And I'm just, I am gobsmacked by the technology required to do Brilliant. that. Mm-hmm. So well done then. Anyway, so all praise to, we must be some of the best tunnels in the world after all this. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Sadly, we have to draw it to a close. We hope you've enjoyed the show as much as Richard and I have enjoyed putting it together, as we always do, don't we? Absolutely. Great fun. Highlight of our week. Anyway, we will be back next week. We hope you will join us. We look forward to your company. And don't forget to let us know what you think via the various channels, because we're always interested to hear. So, until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks for being with us. Do come back. Mm -hmm.